Hello, this is Dan Hagen with Music City Revival Podcast. You can find us at musiccityrevival.live. Uh, this is podcast episode number eight. And uh, we are recording right now from Liz Shaw's uh, killer studio here in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And a great place to record your project. We're grateful for letting us uh, record this podcast episode here. And it's called thetoyboxstudio.com uh, if you'd like to find out more about that. And I'm really excited to have our special guest today, Michael Angelo Batio. Um, and uh, Michael is someone that I've admired since my early guitar days. He was and still is a pioneer on the instrument. He's known for playing his custom double-neck guitars at the same time. Uh, he has had an incredibly successful career from his band Nitro and major label days to creating his own brand, countless instructional videos, uh, inventions, while always pushing the music and boundaries of what is humanly possible. Um, Batio has been listed as one of the top 100 greatest metal guitars of all time by Guitar World magazine, for which he wrote the column Time to Burn, and one of the 20 greatest shredders of all time by Total Guitar magazine, both in April 2008. Batio also won the 2009 Guitar World magazine Reader's Choice Award in the Best Shredder category. In November 2011, Beto won the Guitar World Magazine Reader's Choice Award and was voted the fastest guitar player of all time. In the spring, he'll head out on a European tour. He's soon to release more signature guitars from Sawtooth Musical Instruments. And he, he's done an amazing job at shifting current times to live streams, by, followed by millions around the world and probably the hardest working artist I know. Michael has also become a great friend and, and mentor to me on many levels. So at this time, I'd like to welcome Michael to Music City Revival Podcast. How are you, Michael? I'm doing great. It's good to uh, talk to you again. It's great to chat with you, and, and it's always fun when you come to Nashville and, and we get to hang, and, and uh, you know, I always learn so much from you. And, uh, and that's why I wanted to bring you on. I mean, everybody knows what you're capable of musically, and there's so many things that I want to, you know, kind of tap into that I think you could be a, just a great, valuable resource for so many artists trying to figure out how to promote themselves, you know, in this day and age. So I thought, you know, a great place to start is to ask you to kind of describe that transition from Nitro, the, the major label, uh, you know, music days, to creating your own brand, and, you know, you've had an incredible, successful career. What does that look like, and how did that kind of happen? Well, Nitro was my second major label band. Uh, my first major label experience was a band called Holland, and we run Atlantic Records, and the singer Tom Holland not of Spider-Man fame, and um, but he was a great singer. He was young. He he had he had a great voice. He, he had everything going for him. He was a total rock star. And our first album was on Atlantic Records, our only record. And Tom Worman produced it. And if people don't know that name, uh, the first album he produced was Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent with uh, with Stranglehold. He did. Uh, Cheap Trick, you know, I want you to want me. He did yeah. Jason. He did Motley Crue. 
he was the biggest producer of the 80s when I came up outside of probably, uh, you know, Mutt Lang with Def Leppard. They were yeah. up there. So you would hear, I mean, when you heard, hear every rose has its thorn or she's got looks that kill. That's Tom Warren. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that's my first experience in the major label arena. Um, it wasn't called Badio. It was called Holland. And the band broke up and we did a great record. But moving it forward to Nitro, you know, the singer Jim was really driven. He was an athlete. Uh, he was 19 when we got together. And I told him what I experienced at Atlantic about how basically we we, we got 125000 to do a record, which wasn't even that much back then because we were a baby band, as they called it. And I said, I saw no money on any of this. So I told Jim, we, we really need to work this album. We need to be in contact with the, the people. I, I saw what we didn't do in Holland. And so... We translated that to Nitro, and we did everything we needed to do, and it was really successful. And, and our second album, you know, they, they upped our record budget four times. And But what I also learned is I went through the grunge era. So we have an early 20-year-old lead, you know, he's like 22 years old now, and we are considered passe musically because grunge came in and killed the L.A. metal scene. I, so, I know it. Killed yep. it. All yep. right. Never. There's never been a time like that. Maybe I don't know. You know, I was too young, or you know, maybe when the Beatles came out and they killed Frank Sinatra or something. You know, I'm making. Yeah, that yeah. Up I don't know totally. exactly about that era, but it. This was such a fine line. MTV just stopped playing our videos. Nobody would support the LA metal scene. The Warrants, the Bon, even the Bon Jovis. That that era was gone. It was grunge. So anyway, I saw an opportunity. Somebody had mentioned to me uh, when I was in Nitro if I could do a guitar clinic. I didn't really know what it meant. I said, I'll try it. So I walked into a music store, there were, and uh, at one of the early ones, they actually had an auditorium. There's hundreds of people there. There's guitar, you know, all guitar players. They're asking me questions about how I play guitar. And I went, and I have a degree in music. And so I went, wow. And so what happened was, what Nitro was kind of forced not to disband, but at that time, the singer Jim, he was he was dating Lita Ford. They ended up getting married. He oh, was wow. the real estate. I and I wanted to continue my music career and I got an offer to do clinics. The money was amazing. Net money per show. I got to travel all over the world and I was doing and I formulated this kind of show where it was educational and it was a concert. It was like a concert clinic. And I'd play my double guitar and I was able to travel the world by myself. I'd meet people, you know, when I, I never worked alone, but I could travel all over planet Earth. And so I started my own label. And, you know, having the major label experience, I saw what was successful, what wasn't. And I also realized I could pull because I could tour so much as a solo artist more than most bands. Because I could I could draw as many people by myself in a concert club in Europe as most bands, and the the overhead was very much lower. And so um, I that's when I started my own record company, and that's when I was able to buy my first house. I never had money when I was signed to Atlantic and Warner Brothers. I was broke, so I just continued that. But I've always also kind of just looked and tried to be in the room where I'm not the smartest guy. And so you could see trends coming along. 
DVDs, you know, replacing VHS. Uh, when YouTube came out, you know, I was on it really early. And then when COVID hit, I, in 2020, right before COVID hit, I had a record year of touring. Uh, by March 1st, I'd already done about 50 shows. And, and so, you know, I toured all through, or not that many, I'm sorry, not 50, uh, about 35. I had toured all of uh, February and I was at NAM and in LA for two weeks in January. So I was, uh, and then with COVID, one of the things that I found out is that I immediately went online. I said, the only way I can reach people is online. But the years of doing clinics and public speaking helped me in that, uh, like I'm really natural. Sorry, my phone's getting blown up here. Uh, but I, I found that, um, the way I talk and the way I relate to people, it was, it was just as easy for me to talk in front of a camera as it was in front of people live. And, you know, I, I just try, and I tried to help, you know, I, I do a teaching program and it's fun. And so, and it translates. And so that's what I did. That's awesome. And, you know, there's so many levels of, of things I want to talk about it. You know, like, one, being the smartest person in the room, that's so big, you know, and that, that whole thing about, uh, you know, the, the whole, um, Nirvana thing and seeing that. And, you know, I, I saw that in real time and I kind of shifted because I grew up in the 80s rocker and I kind of shifted more into the kind of jazz and blues kind of world and then back into my rock, putting it all together. But it, you know, it, uh, it really affected us all in different ways. But there's something that's so incredible about you. And that's the fact that you know, as long as I've been in the music business, people usually have their period. And whether that be the 80s or whatever that is, and it's so hard to recreate yourself and stay relevant and stay working. And you are. You're on your game. You're like you know, the hardest working, busier than, you know, you're just as busy as pre-COVID times because you found a way to do it and get your music to the people. And isn't it a wonderful, this live streaming concept, because you're able to, to play now for people all over the world instantly. You don't have to be in that city and that's going to expand your audience so when you actually show up there you have a bigger audience you know which is brilliant yourself but part of the 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 thing about you know staying relevant and recreating yourself is this concept called humility right because sometimes you're on top of the world and and when things that whatever that the major label deal whatever it is and it and it goes away there's, you have to humble yourself and go, Hey, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to find a way. And, and, and you do that. And I'll, I have to say this is really important. I was talking to somebody earlier today about you. It's your personality, man. It is, you have a, a dynamic personality. You're one of the kindest people I've ever met. You treat me like I'm special. Like, every, you know, it's like every time I, uh, like a story or something, uh, you know, you, you write back like instantly within seconds saying, thank you, Dan. How are you? And it's so personable. And I'm like, how do you have time? You have like 126,000 friends on Instagram and you take time for me. And that's like, that means everything and i realize that is how you do it's like the golden rule it's like treat people how you'd like to be treated and you know in my head when i'm thinking who do i want to have on this podcast i'm like i want michael i want people to 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 you know more people to know about what he's doing and why he's so good at it and you know it's this perfect combination of skill hard work a great personality 
and and passion and all those things come through but you know it is definitely your personality that is magnetic and that opens doors more than any anything because i'm sure and i know people from from you know the world you come from and there's a lot of you know d- demigods that you know and i don't want to mention names but um that will serve you well maybe when you're at the height of your moment. But when that moment passes, if if you don't have that personality and a gracious, kind, humble person, I think that's the difference, you know, right there. It's like uh, I'm just sure that people want to work with you. I'm sure that every venue you play, people want to have you back, you know. And, and that it's not only because you're so great, but I'm sure it's how you talk to to the booking agent and the promoter or whatever, you know, all that stuff is important. And I think it's really important in a world that is so self-centered and, and kind of, you know, in social media where it's almost kind of, you know, putting a facade gets the most followers or whatever. And you're the opposite of that. You're real, you're authentic. And that, that really translates. And, uh, and, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's great to have you on here. And, you know, uh, one of the things that um, I was just thinking about that you told me about, because you're a great businessman. And one of the things, like, you've created inventions, right? You created one of the first, like, dampeners, uh, right. you know, at the, uh, uh, you know, at the, the nut of the guitar to, so that you can play with one hand doing hammer ons and pull-offs and not have a bunch of, you know, uh, noise. And, and you were telling me about this, which I'd, I'd like you to, kind of tell me you got a patent uh you know for that and um and you told me something we were hanging out in nashville you said you know dan make sure you don't tell your competition everything you're doing and you know and i think about that a lot and it's not i think there's a difference between helping people and 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 you know being a teacher and a mentor but when you have great business ideas, maybe maybe not telling them until you you've got the patent, you know, done or whatever. Can you just talk about that? That uh, being an innovator, creating inventions, and 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 that concept of maybe not telling everybody what you're doing and and why, uh, what could go wrong with that? Yeah, I think you know it's when when I was in college, it was a great example. If I took a test, I would brag to my friends, "Man, I aced this test." I wouldn't ace it. I wouldn't get an A if I just shut up and got the results. And then I got I usually would do really well. And I kind of uh, translated that with the patent because uh, what what I did was I, I I'm a student of music, you know, and I, I have a motto, always a student. And nobody is so good that they can't learn something new. And what I did is uh, George Van Epps uh, was the first person ever to play a seven string. And I studied him. And he also invented this crude dampening device so that he so it blocked the extra string noise when he was doing more complicated things. It's kind of like a fret wrap. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at his idea. The patent had expired. Uh, I've got a really good uh, intellectual properties attorney. He was my guitar student. I have a lot of like uh, I have uh, my my attorneys and. You know, I have people that are just my friends, but they happen to be really great. You know, that's yeah. the key. They're really awesome. And, and so he's the one who started my company. But to make a long story short, I, I went with an, another attorney to the Patent and Trademark Office in Virginia. And it was a Chinese trademark uh, 
patent uh, guy that worked in the United States. And he looks at me and he goes, you're Michelangelo. <laughs> I know so many times. And I said, yes, he goes, you're very famous there. I said, yeah. And then he, he kept telling me, what is the teaching? He kept saying, because he spoke really good English, but it was a little broken English. And he's like, what is the teaching? And what we realized, the patent process takes years and you have to declare your patent. But what what I found out is that there were there are other people that can take it from you. And so it's I do want to share all my knowledge, but I also don't want to do anything until what I'm doing is already out there. Okay, and that's the distinction. That's yeah. the important part is you're not saying I don't want to share this, but I, you've got a business you know, transaction in the process and you don't want to release information because somebody could potentially legally steal it from you and you just gave it to them. So it's not that you're being stingy. You don't want people to know. It's just protecting yourself. It's protecting your investment because it costs thousands of dollars to hire a patent attorney and to patent something, right? That's not nope. cheap. It, no, it's not cheap. And see what they wanted. What I learned about this patent was actually pretty brilliant. We, as somebody who designs a uh, designs a product to be patented, you want the broadest coverage you can, so nobody can rip you off. But the patent and trademark wants to narrow the ideas of what you can patent to the smallest part. So it, that's the struggle. You have to go back and forth and convince them why you want more coverage. And it's pretty crazy. But, um, yeah, I think that that's kind of the way, you know, I remember when I put my, out my first instructional video called Starlicks, and it was really at that time groundbreaking. I mean, nobody was showing sweep arpeggios and alternate picking and all. And I'm not saying I invented it. I'm just saying I was one of the ones that came out first doing it. And I remember fans of mine said, Michael, you showed too much. And even the over under, we're talking, you know, 1986, you know, I'm doing all this crazy, crazy stuff on guitar and double guitars. And I thought to myself, if I'm afraid to show somebody what I do, then I'm the one who's insecure. You know, I genuinely wanted to help. But you're right, Dan. My thinking is and also uh, in, in my world, too, I have to sign non-disclosure agreements. So it's just in everybody's best interest. Like there's a really great saying that. Never pass an opportunity, pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. And yeah, so, yeah. So I do, but then once it's out, then we can talk about it. Yeah. That- yeah. So I, I love this idea and I can totally relate to the fact that you're looking around at your guitar students, you're realizing what, you know, the skills they have, the jobs they have, and you have this great relationship and they want to help you because, you know, I, uh, you know, some of the, the, greatest opportunities I have created in the music industry or happened to me, I created. And and they were from, you know, when I was doing a a lot of uh, music for reality shows on CMT, it's because I had a couple producers at CMT that were guitar students of mine. And they were talking about these shoots they were doing. And and then I had another student who was the uh, vice president of Gish Sherwin Friends that um, you know, big ad agency that do the Tennessee Titans, blah, blah, blah. And another, you know, guy talking about, oh, yeah, we're in the studio today. And I kind of looked at these people and I was like, wow, I kind of wish I had that work. I wish they were calling me to 
to you know, make music for their jingle. And so I created a jingle business from those connections. And I, I talked to Johnny Bronco, a guy who wrote uh, jingles with Barry Manilow in New York back in the day, Juicy Fruit. And I, I said, Johnny, school me. What's, you know, how do, what's a donut? 15, 20 second, 30, 60 second donut. How do you do this? I came up with a bio. I pitched it to them because, you know, they had heard things I had produced of, you know, artists like, you know, records and stuff. And, and so I kind of learned what I did my research and I put together a bio and I had people like Johnny and a couple other people that were already doing what I wanted to do, being, having surrounded by people that were smarter than me, more experienced than me. And I had this concept, I pitched it, it stuck and I did very well doing that. But, you know, sometimes, People are so obsessed in music and this concept of connections and who you know to go outside of your life that you have instead of realizing that that what you have realized is that some of these people are around you. And if if you have this concept where you just treat everyone kindly and this concept of the golden rule, it's not because you're doing it because you want, you know, people to do things for you but it's a good way to live but you know i have this thought that hey you could be on the airplane and you could be talking to some old lady and and you know and if you're nice to her you don't know who she is you might find out later that she's interested in your music and her son is the president of sony records like you never know and and if it, it doesn't have a sign on it says that says you know my my uh you know, son is a big deal and can make you famous. No, that's not how the world works. The point is, is that if you go around, you're nice to people and you create authentic relationships with people, good things happen. And you realize often that the people, you know, that can really help you are the people that are already in your life and they have an investment in wanting, you know, you know, you to do well. And so, it's it's just a reminder that sometimes you don't have to go down to Sony Records. You don't have to go like talk to the people you know. Tell them what they're doing, and and they might you know a lot of times your friends and people your warm market they want to help you and they can you can create opportunities and so that's it's great to hear the to you know kind of I can relate to you on on so many levels. So Michael, you've got a single that you're singing on that you're going to be releasing soon. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, when when I was younger, before I got the my again, you know, I'll defer to my the first major label band, Holland. Once I got on that level, I had always always sang. Now I, I never professed to be the greatest singer, but I'm I'm a really good background singer. I can sing in tune. My range is like a low tenor, not super high, not super low, but I can I can hit the notes that I need to hit for the harmony. And, and you know, usually that center harmony, you know, I dial into it, and so. I always sang lead when I was younger. And, uh, you know, I grew, I, I grew up also, there was a, a time where, you know, I was into really progressive music and, and then it got to be kind of punk in the punk era of the early eighties. And, and that was, I tried to sing like Elvis Costello and, and, and keep my mouth closed and, and, you know, say the words a certain way. And then, uh, a few years later when I got signed with the band Holland, you know, I think that's why I can write music. I mean, I was in two major label bands that wrote all the songs with a singer because I can sing. But I hadn't sang for a long time. And, um, you know, it's funny. And I think you can see, you know, music is a common thread. 
Like I have friends that I still talk to that I've known since I was 14. They're not professional musicians, but they were great musicians and they still play. And so what, what I did is during COVID, like I, I found, you know, I work with a lot of people like Jared Dines. You know, he's a young guy. He's an Internet influencer. And I don't I don't really push myself on these people. You know, I don't like I my philosophy and just life is I like to be in a good mood. I like to treat people nice, but you don't need to be a pushover. Somebody really tries to nail you. You've got to find, you know, that's when I, I, I'm not, it's, I'm not like always that I'm not mean, but, but I, I get, I try to eliminate that kind of person, the person that wants to win at your expense. And so here's what happened with her. Again, this is COVID. I'm trying to, the word that kept coming to my mind is content. You have to keep releasing content. Content, content, and your word that you used, relevant. See, if you cease to be relevant, it's done. It's over. And so you've got to stay, you've got to find a way to stay relevant. And there's so much great guitar playing right now. My idea of relevance for myself is not to try to compete with the the new young guy that's out there. It's just to be the best Michelangelo Badio I can be at this particular time. So um, here I get together with my lifelong friends. I've got one of my friends is this retired financer that's, you know, you know, a stockbroker. And, you know, he's a, a, a fantastic painter. William Schneider. You, he's a, is that a the guy playing keyboards. Yeah. And, oh, OK. Yeah. And here's this, you know, he's like 12 years older than me. His paintings are award. This guy is a phenomenal artist. He, he was the CEO of this billion dollar corporation. He's the nicest guy in the world. He's a great musician. And he kept saying to me, he goes, Mike, you used, you know, I was in a band with him when I was 22 years old. Oh, you guys go way back. Yeah. Oh. So, and then, you know, he was older. He was in his thirties, but he still looked really, he looked like a total rocker back then. And the drummer Rob, who I played with, I played with him since I was 18 and he played. I don't know what it is about me and Rob. We just keep keep seem, seeming to hit that song. He played on No Boundaries, 22 million views. You know, he played on this other song of mine, Rainforest. And there's like half a dozen songs that my fans know of mine that are some of my top ones. And Rob seems to be the guy that plays on it. So they and he knows that I can sing, too. And they kept bugging me to sing. And I had no confidence in it. I, you know, I hadn't sang for a long time. And. You know, I nobody knows that I could lead sing. And then I said, OK, the song hurt the Trent Reznor song that Johnny Cash did. It's perfectly in my range. I did a version kind of both styles, like low, like Johnny Cash. And then I upped it on an octave, like in the Trent Reznor. And it just worked. And, you know, I don't I'm not saying I'm a role model. I don't try to be a role model, but I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't smoke pot. I don't do drugs and I don't drink that much. So I haven't screwed up my body over the years like a lot of other people. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I started to sing again. I'm like, I can still do this. You know, I guess I had I hadn't practiced. I mean, think about you not playing guitar for years. You know, it's still in your head, but you have to work it. But, you know, my voice was was there. And I, and again, I'm not saying I'm the greatest singer, but I like I sing it with a lot of emotion. I really love that song. And then we did a really cool arrangement of it where it starts off like the Johnny Cash version. Bill, uh, the keyboard, the bass and keyboard player, he's really musical. He plays keyboards really good. So do I. So he added his part. I added mine. But it's really stripped down. It's one guitar, one voice, bass, 
drums, two simple keyboard parts that aren't even in. And then what we did is we kept accelerating the tempo. Like first verse was slower than Johnny Cash. Then we moved it up when the drums come in and Rob played really tasteful and cool. And he's got a really good groove. And then we did a guitar solo that at the, the last lyric of Hurt says, I will find a way. So he's trying to say that even though he hurts people, that if he had it to do all over again, he'd probably do it different. And, and, and he wouldn't be the person that he was. And so my lead at the end was my way of saying, I found a way. And then, you know, we bring it up to this majestic thing. So, and we released it and it's getting a lot of coverage right now. It's great. And, you know, it's something about that, like, besides the fact that, you know, you're singing and that's cool. The message, we live in a time where people are hurting, right? And, and the artist that can resonate and represent that is really going to expand their audience because people need somebody that are speaking to them. And and I feel like in so many ways, so many artists, for whatever reason, maybe they're in so much pain themselves, that very few are, are able to express something real. And that's what they need. Like, like there's, you know, um, there's... There's still a lot of in social media seems to be still a lot of superficial kind of things, you know, being pushed. But I think people are are ready to instead of have this artist that's uh, on this platform that's untouchable. They want that artist that they can relate to that feels like them. And I think that's what you're presenting with that song is something very authentic and real and honest. And, 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 and you're saying because, hey, that message of this song, in this world, look at what people are going through. They're going through divorces. They're losing their industry, their home. And it's really easy to get bitter and, and to have that trauma that you're going through and to project that on other people and, and hurt other people. Um, but that's not the way. And it's not the way for you and it's not the way for other people. And if you learn the lesson that, hey, you know, if if I take a different road, a different fork of the road, and I keep my head up, and I translate that pain into productivity, then I can inspire people, and that's no, you're that's, right. That's powerful. It, well, you know, I was thinking too, you know, about with social media, you know, because I've got you know a good fan base on Instagram. I've got half a million people on on Facebook. Yeah. So it's and I get inundated with messages and. There are certain people that like for, you know, I get back to you because we're friends and yeah, yeah. about what you do. And then one of the things that it's a good sign of success. When when I was a columnist with Guitar World, I used to fly to New York. We do six columns at a time with a guy named Andy Alador, who's really great, that worked with Guitar World. And so we would do six. We would, you know, get the articles, you know, the written part and the video part. And the last series that we did, we actually did them at YouTube headquarters in, in New York City. And I remember going through and we were talking and the people at YouTube said that I was a disruptor. And, and I go, what do you mean by that? And they said, for whatever reason, you've got something that people are interested in seeing. And I thought about, you know, what you know, Gene Simmons said this to me a long, long time ago. I've opened up for Kiss. I've auditioned for Kiss. I've been to Gene Simmons' house. I mean, he's been a real part of my career uh, in, in those early days, even up until about, oh, God, 10 years ago or so. He had heard a rumor that Nitro was getting back together, and he asked me about it. 
But Gene Simmons said one thing that has stuck with me through my entire career. He said it when I was in the 80s before I was in Nitro. I was in the transition of the band Holland and Nitro because Nitro was the tail end of the 80s into the early 90s. And he said, Michael, he goes, Kiss was Kiss before we had a record deal. And he used Madonna. He goes, Madonna was Madonna. He goes, if you don't know who you are, nobody's going to know if you are who you are. And so that sense of who the heck are you? And and what I found, and Jim Gillette was really good about this too, because see, when I was in the band Holland, the lead singer Tom was brilliant. He had a voice like Rod Stewart meets Paul Rogers. He had this high, soulful, beautiful Steve Perry, but he had raps to it. We should have been a huge band. But I also noticed about him when he would do interviews, like live, he would be really funny and himself, but he was never himself in a lot of places he needed to be himself. Whereas Jim was the exact opposite. We, we, when he would do an interview, he was just out over the top great. You know, he was on his game all the time. We would talk to the label and also we never argued. And I found that like in this world, there are people that thrive on chaotic situations. They enjoy the chaos. They like to make people's lives miserable. I try and eliminate that. I, I'm, I'm in a good mood. Also, it makes me play better. And then when I went to YouTube and they're like, they had seen that, you know, even in the early days, I had these multi-million views, you know, uh, on a lot of videos. And, and, you know, I put out a video of my double guitar, nine million views. And they said, I'm a disruptor. And I didn't know, I didn't think that was a good word. And I go, what do you mean? And he said, and that's when they said, if they're scrolling down videos, people will stop at yours. And mm. the things that, it it I, it is I think, is because I I listen to Gene Simmons, I know who I am, mm. and all I need to do is to be the best version of me and put out the best things that I can do. Like her, I did the best I could, and then you let the audience make their own decision. I, I love that, and it it's so important because you know I've, I've said for a long time what a true artist is is somebody that can look in the mirror and go i am representing who i really am it's not a facade like we all know those artists that you know they're one person in the green room or you know in real life and they're another person on stage it's a different character and for some people yeah, like alice cooper he creates this you know that's a whole other level but that's who he is right that's not he, it's it's not like he's just making this up. It's that's a theatric part of his schizophrenic, wonderful brain, he comes, and it's authentic. He comes across as genuine to me. I've seen him in concert. Yes, he's, exactly. Yeah, that is who he is, right? It's not. Uh, yes, he creates this character, but but he you know because he's talked about that. But but that's who he is, and that is the thing. I think that's because I was I was really kind of like had this intention of like. I really, I know Michael can give some nuggets to young people and, and, you know, what, what, what is the greatest thing you could do? And you nailed it right there is to find out who you are and to not worry about whether that's already marketable or somebody's even proved because it's you. There's nobody you have to create your market. Whereas most people, and this is a, a really important thing that I've discovered in the music industry. I came from a, a big, art, music, college, jazz college in Denton, Texas. I moved to Nashville and I realized that image and, uh, you know, and all these things were, were always before the music oftentimes. So what I discovered very quickly, such as music and such as life, is 
maybe 2% are innovators, entrepreneurs, you know, trailblazers, and the rest are copycats, and they follow in, and they follow the trend. But it's a Dave Matthews, it's a Nora Jones, it's a Michael Angelo Batio that creates the trend and always has the most success. The hardest thing about, especially if you move to a town like New York, Nashville, L.A., is there's a part of you when you're authentic, when you're different, that's very lonely, right? It's really difficult because you're your own thing and it's like being in Nashville. I'm the other guy. I'm the, the jazz, rock, R&B, flamenco, whatever I am guy. I didn't move here to to be Joe Blow country session guitar player or whatever and there's nothing wrong with being that if that is authentically you but I I moved here to stick out and I think it's a really important thing to 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 inspire people to to go for to go deep and go you because you can never fail as an artist if you express yourself yeah. that's the goal yeah you right. know yeah and if people don't like it that's fine because not everybody's going to like you, you know. That's one thing about being from Chicago, right? That's a little bit different sometimes. I mean, to be honest, living in the South is I think people from Chicago I, in general, are, I think, are, can be a little bit more authentic. Of uh, You know where people you stand with people. Sometimes you have fewer best friends, but they, they'll have your back you know, for life, you just describe the people you're working with. You're still working with people from high school, you know. But this all comes down to... Um, authentic relationships, and you only can have authentic relationships when you're authentic to yourself. So it all comes down to, you know, being real, you know, to yourself. And, and so, you know, it, sometimes the hardest thing, uh, you know, is, hey, you've got a lot of influences. You know, that's been my struggle. It's like, what am I? I've got all these different influences. And in my first record, The Journey, I said, hey, it's okay. There's a flamenco track. There's a, there's a, a jazz track, there's a blues thing, because what I've discovered is some people like, some people say, well, Dan, you should do a whole flamenco record. And I'm like, okay, great. But you downloaded the flamenco songs and that's what's important. You got, you know, and if I, if I, if I would have done just that, then I would have alienated the, the people who did, who like the other music. So it's okay to be diverse too, right? And that's like what you're going through. Like the old system says you just have to do one thing and that's all you can do. And I think they missed the mark, even marketing, uh, you know, companies, big companies that, hey, what if I market my product to other potential demographics. So, so now that you're singing too, that you're releasing this song, have you thought enough down the road? Will you, um, in your live streams, will you sing that song as well? In your gigs, do you think you'll start to present that side, start working that in, or is that a whole nother thing that now you go out and do a singer-songwriter tour once you do a record? Where, where are your thoughts there with that? Well, you said something important that back in the day, so to speak, what, what bands were obligated to do being on a major label is stylistic continuity. So you needed, like we, uh, the label would choose the songs, you know, we would record like our second album, we recorded 18 or 19 songs, the label only chose 10 or 11. And so we had um, records came out that, you know, even Led Zeppelin, they did an acoustic side on Led Zeppelin 3 and an electric side. So it was stylistic continuity. They didn't do electric, acoustic, electric, acoustic. 
that was the rule. Um, and it was almost like Baroque music. Uh, they called it unity of affection, where the atmosphere of the song from beginning to end was the same. It was kind of, and that's why I was thinking about this. It's like history repeating itself. But now, one of the things, you know, I was with Dean Guitars for a long time and the owner passed away. And, and the new owners, I left, Dave Mustaine left, you know, Dimebag's estate is left. You know, it's their new ownership is just not the old ownership. But when I went with Sawtooth, they're a fantastic company. They're part of a, two other big California companies. He said something that you do. Uh, and they said, Mike, you've got this, you know, extensive background of a lot of different styles. This is the era to do that. See, it, it's you can you can do whatever you want. There's never been a freer time in music, uh, and and you can control a lot of your own destiny. Uh, you know, being on a major label. I didn't have a choice of the album covers. I didn't have a choice of the songs. I didn't have a choice of the song order. They controlled a lot of things. I was just a player. I was just a piece of a puzzle. And they hopefully, you know, but both bands I was in, we were good enough to be signed to Warner Brothers. And, you know, we were, it was big league. But it was today I can do a vocal song. See, and then, you know, because this happened to me. Uh, people used to say, you know, the same thing. Michael, why don't you release an acoustic album? Well, I release acoustic songs. So to answer your question, I'm working on another vocal song now, and I'm going to incorporate a few songs because people still want to see me play guitar. So it's never going to be like voice over guitar. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like a, I think to myself, I always felt like in the band situation, I was a Richie Sambora singer versus John Bon Jovi. Like yeah. I, good i can sing living on a prayer you know i can do all that stuff but bon jovi's still the singer so i don't i never lost sight of i yes i can sing good but p and people like to hear me sing for a small amount you know if i do a whole night of it i would work with another singer you know? yeah okay and that's that's great so what you're you're just doing is you're expanding what you're already doing and now you're, you're bringing you've got it bigger opened up the palette a little wider so you're not you're not you know Walking away from what you're doing, you just here's the, and and you know you know what's brilliant about that, Michael is uh you know I tell my guitar students all the time I say hey, um, you know it's great you know to be the greatest guitar player in the world but you know first of all and the thing that separates you and I want to say this it's very important to say the thing that separates you from all of these shredders the young shredders not I don't want to say all because there's there's great ones that I admire. But in this world of Instagram, you know, shredders, the thing about you is you always play melodies and you're always a song guy and your technique is only a device to express melodic content. And that's really, really important because, you know, it's like the older I get and it's a great thing about Nashville, it makes you a song guy. And so I have this thing that whether it's jazz, fusion, blues, I don't care what it is, if you're solo doesn't have something to do melodically, rhythmically, harmonically with the tune and and an enhancement of the song, it, it, it really doesn't matter to me. I don't want to listen to it. I don't care how fast you can play. Play me a melody. Move my soul. Move my heart. And, and consequently, I tell my students, if you don't do that, Get ready for your shows to be a meat fest. There will be no women at your show because women like melodies. They like songs. And yes, they like singers. And, and so 
not only will you not alienate your your current audience, you'll be inviting more of an audience. And isn't that the goal as an artist always is to open up your palette and as you open up your palette of of what you bring to the table musically, so does your audience expand. Have have you noticed at all kind of since you started releasing some of the vocal stuff and, you know, is that kind of bringing in some new de- demographic and social media maybe like following wise? Have you seen any of that take place? Yeah, yeah, a lot. And, uh, you know, because we've seen, uh, you know, with, with Instagram, you know, it's the 15, 30 second, you know, pieces on YouTube, you know, um, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's got to be done right. You know, and like you said, there's got to have the, it has to have the feeling, but yeah, I, the last tour I did before COVID, we were doing master classes. We were, and, and part of my show is the way I talk. Like I tell funny stories about things. And so, and that a lot of people like, and I have a younger agent that said, tell these stories so i have this whole thing that i do in concert but yeah it's expanded the base i mean and and one of the things that i think is funny is and i've talked about this with the youtube because i'm going to defer back to them because they really did analytics on different why things do what they do and it's not it wasn't as political then as it is now and i'm not in politics anyway but what they said is that you also need a little negativity to hit your page they said, because your fans are going to come out and nail them. And, and so, you know, and I find that if everybody. Oh, oh, so you so you need uh, you basically need some hecklers. You you need some some negativity. And I, I love that because I'm I'm a big believer in that, too. It's like, uh, you know. You don't have to to defend the truth. It's a, like a lion that can defend yourself. But there's nothing more brilliant than when people come and attack you and your fans just take care of it. You just stay out of it. Like, hey, I'm not going to get in dirty water. I, I am who I am. I said what I said. I believe what I said. If somebody has a problem, they, they talk bad. I'm not going to, you know, mur myself in the mud. I'll just let my fans protect me. YouTube said that. They said you can't have everybody like you but they also said something else if a vast majority don't like what you're doing then you better rethink this you know Mm. do you have to have that the ratio of you know for me it's like 95 you know 98 percent likes but you have that small amount of people that they probably don't even listen to it they just start in a bad yes they just want to vent and isn't it you know i almost feel like you're such an authentic, strong person that maybe this doesn't have effect on you. But I know artists that uh, there there was a, a duo that I used to work with, um, you know, that uh, two steel girls that were on The Voice, and it was a mother-daughter duo, and and they, you know, had incredible success, and, and you know, I did some touring with them. and But there was a period at the end of The Voice and after The Voice where they would get attacked by all these hecklers and, you know, you're too old to the mom and all this stuff. And, and, and they wrote songs about this. And I, and I heard the story. It was like they, they were so close to giving up on music because they allowed that negative talk to, you know, to, to basically 
they, it, it, it got down to their, their confidence level and ripped them apart to almost to the point where they're ready to, to quit music. And so I have a really strong feeling that, hey, yes, you, I think it's important, like you said, yeah, 95%, you want to make sure that, you know, 95% of the people don't like you. Maybe you need to look at your art. Why is that? But, but that 5% don't worry about, but, you know, I always loved how Miles Davis, uh, handled that. You know, he said, because uh, I'm a big believer in, hey, I create my music. I don't know. Like my new single, what is it? I don't know. I'll let the critics decide what it is. I, I need a soundbite to describe it. But Miles said, if critics had any talent, they'd make their own music. And that was his his way of saying, I don't care what they think. This is me. I put it out there. No apologies. And uh, and And the point is... If you obsess on the, the positive feedback that you need it for your self-confidence and to feel good about yourself and, and to not hurt yourself at night, if, if you're dependent upon that, the negative uh, comments will destroy you. Yeah. Well, you know, we there, it's a funny thing. You could have 100 comments. 99 would be, you're wonderful. And one would be, you suck. Yeah. You know, you're <laughs> me, you suck. How do I get around all that? I don't even read anything that doesn't have to do with my own personal pages. I don't even read. I don't. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. There's nothing. I have zero control over it. So, yeah, I don't. It doesn't. But I feel this is how I judge my own art and what I do in life. If I feel good about it, if I believe in what I just did, whether it's a decision or whether like in the song Hurt, I believe that was the absolute best I could do. It's not. You know, you can hear it's not mellow-dined and pitch-corrected all over the place. These are real. I played live in the studio. This is a real performance. One guitar played straight through and on the acoustic. If I believe in it, I can sell it. And I don't mean selling it like selling cars or shoes. I mean, I can sell the idea that this is awesome. This is what I believe in. And so it doesn't really matter to me what other people say as long as i truly in my heart of hearts believe that this is the best i can do and i like it and, and you know another thing dan i really this sounds kind of weird but i would have made a really good anr person i i have a good eye for talent and for what people like and i'll give you a great example way back in the day you know i'm from chicago Bands like Cheap Trick and Enough's Enough, that Chicago sound, even Jim Peterick, Eye of the Tiger, I worked with him uh, before, you know, he wrote uh, Hold On Loosely and Caught Up In You, So Caught Up In You, all the 38 special. Chicago, the rock sound was kind of like, it's kind of poppy almost, you know, like, I want you to want me. That's what I grew up on. And I remember watching Cheap Trick in the clubs. Because there was a while where they lowered the drinking age to 19 for beer and wine. When I turned 19, then they moved it back to 21. And here's the point. I used to see Cheap Trick. And I said, Robin Zander is probably the most angelic-looking guy I've ever seen. He looked like an angel. I'm not kidding. The flip out, this perfectly straight blonde hair, this chiseled face. He was like a gorgeous guy. I'm not gay. But you look at him, that guy's cool, man. Guys liked him. Guy, and girls just thought he was so gorgeous. But uh, he used to sing really raspy in the clubs. Like his voice always, ah, tax man. It was always screaming. 
And I told myself, and then I heard Cheap Trick's first album by Jack Douglas, the producer of Aerosmith. And I didn't like Sanders' vocals on it that much. I thought they were just too bar bandish. They were, they, he didn't calm down the brass. And here's the point. Here I'm working with the band Holland, Tom Worman produced Holland. Well, he produced Cheap Trick in color. I want you to want me. He, all of a sudden, Xander's voice is this clean, angelic, pretty voice. And, and I thought, and I thought to myself, this is exactly what they needed to do. And Worman told me that. He said that when he first heard Cheap Trick, he said he loved the band and he loved Robin Xander's voice, but he thought he needed to clean up. You can use the rats sometimes, but he said he needed to clean up his voice and smooth it out. And it was like, I heard this. And, That's awesome. You know, it's just like I, I hear a lot of bands like uh, and I, you know, I think, man, this band's really got it. This I just have a good. But it, it's because I feel music. You yeah. Know? Some people don't feel it. Like I know people. I get chills when I hear a song I really like. Like yeah. or, or like McCartney when he sings a word a certain way. I got a feeling when I was a little boy about, the, you know, little kid. And I get the same feeling now that I'm an adult. The way he sang it, it was so powerful, you know, and that's what really guides my decisions, even in business. You know, you got to make a decision and you can't vacillate. You know, people who, who can't, if you take too long to make decisions, could cost you. If you change the decision you made, that doesn't mean you can't do a course correction, but great CEOs and great leaders think about a decision, make the dis- make it and go for it. They make it quickly and they never second guess themselves, right? And that's, there's an art to doing that. It's like once you feel it, you know your instinct says, yes, do it. Then it's taking the risk. You have to take risks. And, and that, that is the, you know, second part of that is that you have to trust yourself, go for it. And you have to take risks because nothing good comes without risk, right? And nothing, uh, uh, you know, great comes from your comfort zone, right? right? And, And that's a key. And hey, for a guy who comes out playing a double neck guitar, you're not trying to stick in any kind of comfort zone. You're like, I'm Michael and I am adamantly me and I make no apologies. And that, that's what people, that's one of the things that you see is like, man, this guy, like, I love when you share Steve Vai's, you know, stories about you. And like there was one recently and he's got like an eight neck guitar and he said something like, I should probably talk to Michael. Michelangelo about this, you know, and uh, and you're always so gracious to Steve, you know, when he does that and mentions you. And I'm sure you guys probably have a great, you know, relationship, clearly of mutual admiration. Um, but but I, I love to, you know, I love to see that with with people that I respect, because this is not a competition. Music is not a competition, right? Like, you know, that's that's why we got into music. I mean, I played sports when I was younger, but I got into music because I realized, you know, I'm only competing with myself and being my greatest self. And I love what you said about putting everything into your recording and being able to walk away from it going, I gave it my all. I don't care what anybody thinks. That's me. I captured it. I'll never have any regrets about what I put out there because it's authentically me. And and that is the greatest success as an artist, right? You represented yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, is there, if you had to, well, first of all, okay, I, I want to talk about sawtooth guitars because, you know, it's been great watching 
the dynamic with you and the acoustics. Because, by the way, you're an incredible acoustic player, and you can hold your own on acoustic, whether it be flamenco or a solo guitar or you're just arpeggiating something. You're very dynamic and incredible acoustic player, which I fully appreciate. But it's cool to see how... They're releasing guitars that you're playing that are more like tellies and strats and things that you wouldn't automatically assume that you would see Michelangelo Beto playing. Um, you want to talk about the company at all and some of the guitars that are coming out? Yeah, because, um, you know, I've known as a metal player. And see, again, it comes from my past of being on major labels and having to define yourself. You know, because, you know, how many times have people said, well, what does your music sound like? You know, or like, you know, I, you know, I would ask people point blank. Like I, I've asked a lot of people over the years, uh, how would you say you are as a guitarist? You know, and I like the people, I'm great. Cool. That's it. You know, um, but I found in this day and age, Sawtooth, you know, when I was with Dean, you know, like I said, the owner died. We were very, very close friends and, and we always did pointy guitars and that was what I was used to. And see, again, Dan, we're not in that year anymore where you have to be one thing and so i thought what is the the way that i could blow minds is by playing going a 180 not changing my style but uh releasing different styles and the thing that i liked about sawtooth i had they have three companies there's sawtooth musical instruments which i'm the main guitar in dorsey rudy sarzo's the main bass in dorsey and then vinnie apice's the main drum uh in dorsey And the owner of Sawtooth, they have several owners, but the main guy, Joe, comes from manufacturing. He was in the printing industry, and he's a drummer. So he's really passionate about music, but he knows manufacturing better than anyone I've ever met in the MI. I See, in in my era, I got guitars made by Wayne Charvel, the man. When I have a Charvel guitar, it's not it's not a Charvel with a it's the guy Charvel. Grover Jackson was my friend. I had the best luthiers in the world. I had Jose. We were talking about this last night. Rewire my Marshall. He's the one who did Ingves. I had the best gear and because I had the best people working on it. I didn't know what the heck they did. I didn't care. It just sounded amazing. And so, and then over the years, even with Dean, we released a lot of signature models. I had a lot of success with it. And then with Sawtooth, we got really down Sawtooth is that's one of their sides of the business. The other one is Chromacast and, and they have, they do parts, guitar stands, picks, straps on Amazon. If you look at the top 10 music products that are sold half to, to seven or eight are Chromacast. They're a huge equipment, like a parts company. So that's a business too. Then business three is go DPS music, the retail side, which is how I met them. I did a guitar clinic for them around, 2013 and i just i this is this la new school way of doing business there was only like 30 chairs at the clinic i thought wow man this isn't going to be very good and then i didn't realize all of a sudden the video cameras came out there were 30 chairs and thousands of people online it's the first time i had seen this and we're talking way back little you know almost 10 years ago and it was it just they did business a new way and What they did was I really enjoy like their acoustics, the way I mean, for the money, they're the best guitars that are on the planet. I mean, it's unbelievable. I, the record quality acoustics, 
record quality electrics. And we're doing crazy things like the weirdest thing a Michelangelo Badio could play at a double is two tellies. Yeah. So we put two tellies together. And now we're going to, we can go back to the pointy shapes, but I wanted to just blow it up a little bit, just make people go, what? And, and again, it's the quality of the work. The, the, we did a limited edition guitar. They, they sold out. They're doing really well and of the doubles and, but it's a really well made guitar and it's really, the cost is nowhere near what other companies can do because they're so good at manufacturing. Did you know all these years of playing guitar? I had no idea that a Floyd Rose, the actual piece that the bridge had different sizes. I didn't know. Here's me, you know, Mr. Guitar. I did not know because nobody told me. They always worked. I was like, okay. And then all of a sudden, Softy is telling me, well, what size should we use? Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? And even <laughs> I were talking about that. He's here. He played Black Sabbath and Dio. They make great drums. And Vinny was saying the same thing. He's just used to having the best. And so he didn't really think about it because, oh, yeah, this sounds great. Well, I don't like this. And when you actually have to manufacture it and you're thinking, let's get this to a price point, then it's a whole different world. And I'm having a lot of fun designing it. Well, um, where, what's the website? Where can people find? Is it Sawtooth.com or what is it? It's Sawtoothworld.com. Great. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. And I highly suggest people looking at it because I've been very impressed from what I've seen. I love the wow factor. And all the things you're describing is what I'm, I'm like, wow, look at that guitar Michael's playing. And I know that you're capable of playing anything stylistically. And I've talked to you in detail about your early days as a, as a jingle guitarist. And, yeah. and when you do jingles, you got to be able to play everything. And I know you can read, you can read too, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, Coming from this concept of uh, I really wanted to a lot of this this interview to be something that we could, you know, share with young people that are artists and what can they extract from this. And besides the fact that, you know, uh, it'll bring more people that be interested in hearing your music. And, and one of the things that really strikes me very clearly is you see Michael and you see your brand and everything and talking to you, it's it's. You are a team player, and you build teams well, and you you know what your strengths are and what you don't know, and you never bluff and pretend that you know what you don't know. You don't know about Floyd. I'm the same way about guitars. Like I know people that can set up their own guitars. I'm not that guy. I work with the best. I hand you know when I was in Dallas, I'd work with Rene Martinez. It did all uh, Steve Ray Vaughan and Jeff Beck's guitars, and and then he was working with Jimmy. But I don't know how to set up guitars or any of that, and uh, that's one of the things as a telling a friend today like you know my girlfriend i'm the produ- the what makes me a good producer is i know what my strengths are and and i focus on those things and i bring professionals to the table in my team for different projects that are are masters of things that i'm not good at right. and 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 that's a really important thing is that nobody is great at everything and, and there there used to be this day and age where it was about being a specialist. And when I first moved to Nashville, people were like, you're either a producer, you're this, you're a songwriter, you're a session guy, or a road guy. And I looked at those people and I said, like, well, I'm going to prove you wrong because I want to do all those things and I don't live in the box that, that, you know, that you have kind of put yourself in. And, but still, there is, you can be diverse. But you can still know, be very honest about what you are good at. You know, like, I'm not good at, uh, you know, um, 
making a video, promotional video. So I hire somebody. I'm hiring somebody now to work on videos. I don't have those skills. I know what I'm good at. And that's something I see in you and is that you are are great at assembling teams and people and 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 you know and do you agree that sometimes you know part of being an artist independent artist is sometimes you you put together a team for this project that might not be your team always but it's kind of like when you're freelance and you're like okay I need this guy for this project and we might circle back and work on something else but you bring in specialists for a project or whatever and you find the best people, you know, and you assemble those people and in the end it helps promote your brand. But you couldn't do it all, you know, with, without those people and that. No, you can't. And, and uh, you know, my dad used to say, you know, it's better to be a master of one than a player of many. Now, I play keyboards. It's my second instrument. A lot of people don't know that, but I'm I'm at the point in my life now where I'm going to start doing keyboard videos because I can riff out or like singing, but I've never been a lone wolf. I've never had when, when, even when I did clinics and traveled by myself on an airplane, I would get off that plane and meet a whole group of people that I was working with. I work good with companies, um, you know, with, with Dean guitars. I remember it was really funny. Uh, the old, the old owner, Elliot was really great human being. And so are the people at Sawtooth. I have a rule too. I, I just I got to work with people I like. I'm at this, and I've been like that, and that I respect, like like that house band. Yeah, I here I do in one year. I work with Rudy Sarzo, Vinnie Apice, two of the biggest names, and and you know rock, and you know have you know working with Ozzy and Black Sabbath and Dio and all this, and then the young singer named Melody from the band Liliac that's 19 years old, and then. And I'll just switch gears and work with lifelong friends, the engineers, this retired CEO, the bass players, this award-winning, fantastic artist. The drummer, Rob, is an amazing musician. And he kind of, we kind of look like each other a, a little bit with our hairstyle and all that. And people thought I was playing drums. But it's the diverse part of this. But you've got to do it good. You've got to do it really good. And that's my – so I never work alone. And I also have another rule. Perfection is not the goal. Paralysis through analysis. If you try for perfection, you're never going to reach it. You set the bar at a certain height. It doesn't have to be perfect, but once it gets over that bar, that's it. It's good. Done. Yes, yes. Really good at making that decision. It's like it's the best I could do for not for not because it's perfect, but it, it's get it gets what I want to get. It, it captures whatever it is I want to capture. That, I, I like that per, paralysis. What was it? Paralysis. Paralysis through analysis. Through analysis. Yeah. Because it's so true. Because if you if you first of all, none of us is perfect. None of us is God. But if you set yourself to this this perfectionist, you know, narcissist type of level of perfectionist, you can't create anything. You can't put anything out. And I've I know people that are so talented and they have this gene in them, something that that keeps them from putting anything out because they're so critical. And it's like there's a point where you just have to just release it, let it go. And like you said, it's like you have a certain you know, level that it has to be met out and anything. I like that. That's kind of like, okay, this gets me. That's what I'm aiming for. If I can get it above that, it's good enough to go. I don't have to overanalyze it, you know. You can always look, you can always learn from a project and go, hey, I could have done that better and I'll learn from it next time. But it's really good to hear from somebody like you because when I hear you play, 
I've never heard you play a bad note, and that's hard to do. I mean, you know, I, I'm, you know, at the heart of me, a, a jazz blues guy, and so, like, I, I love this story of uh, Herbie Hancock was playing with Miles Davis, and he was a young Herbie Hancock playing this big concert. I can't remember where it was. And Herbie said he was comping for Miles' solo, and he hit a note in a chord. It was just, it, it wasn't jazz. It was wrong. It was bad. And in that instant that seemed like forever he thought oh i've done it my career's over i screwed up and then he heard miles play that note circle around it and make that chord sound like it was meant to be and he's like that's the genius of miles davis it's like hey we can make mistakes but we can make it sound like we meant to that that is no mistake at all and so and there's an art to that because I'm sure you have to have moments, and I've seen you. I saw you on that tour in 2019, you know, uh, at uh, Springwater, mm-hmm. and uh, and and I heard you play all kinds of stuff. And as a matter of fact, I think you were having them. There might have been some technical issues that night, right? Mine. And and it didn't phase you and your, you know, like some people would freak out, storm out of the room if you don't, you know. But I still, I don't remember hearing one note that sounded like it you know is wrong and i'm sure that that you're doing a lot of improvising and i'm sure that my instinct says you have structure and and maybe what you're going for in a solo and then you have that freedom to improvise but i'm sure that there's got to be a night where you play a note that you, you thought oh well that's not what i was going for and isn't that an interesting thing as a performer is sometimes in your mind, you have an idea of what you're trying to go for. And if it comes out different, in that moment, if you overanalyze it, you can say it's wrong. And and then if you go with that perspective, it's wrong, you can jeopardize the performance in front of you instead of letting go of it and go, that was a moment. Because has this happened to you before where you have one of those moments where you play something was a note you didn't intend to play, you intended something else, and and you know you let it go and then later you hear recording go that was cool man that was better than what i was going for and and because you kept going you didn't train wreck the rest of your performance obsessed with this perfection you didn't meet and does that kind of happen to you at all where you, you well sometimes uh that happens to me when i'm writing in okay. con- uh, you know when i when i play live I, I have parts that are I play the same way all the time. Right. Parts that are improvised. The improvised parts don't always come off the way I like it. But I I have a practice regimen that I do, and I learned some of this from Mark Tremonti because uh, we we're really good friends. You know, I warm up and I don't overplay in in before I go on stage, but I go over the parts of different songs that I know I'm going to play like the ones that are maybe technically more like a vibrato. So I've got a pretty good idea. The, what's happened to me live mostly is every once in a while, it's the blatant mistake. It doesn't happen as much now, but because I'm, I'm so focused on, I've done so many shows that I pretty much know when I'm going to play and, and the improvised stuff. You know, I, I have a practice regimen that I do and, and uh, I have a warm up and, and I've knocked on what I've never been heard and it really works. But I remember playing the double guitar one time. I was playing part of Mozart's little sonatina in C. It's like, dun, 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 dun. and I remember hitting a note a half step off. 
And like that, eh, instead of like down, 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 bump, I went, eh. and I were, I was in Scotland and, and I'll never forget the, the, uh, uh, sound man who I had worked with. He goes, mate, I heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, it was, there's no correcting and it was just bad. And, but I'll tell you what I did learn. I used to, when I was younger and I had made any kind of mistake, I used to be really depressed about it. Like, oh my God, I suck. And then I, I realized you did as, I, again, I did as good as I could do, you know? And so, and I, I learned from that. So, you know, in concert, you want to make as few mistakes as possible. Like, like that night that you saw me, not only were we having technical difficulties, but my main guitar, my guitar tech who sets up all my gear, he didn't. I had my my pickups hard mounted into the body. The screw popped up. We lost the screw. The <coughs> jumped into the strings. So huh. I, have, I I I needed a 24 fret guitar. I was using that the Heritage, which is like a Les Paul with 22 frets. Oh. Couldn't even play my main guitar that night. But see, here's my mindset. It is what it is, man. You go out, you do it, and I kind of embrace it. Like, cause it's one of, it's one of the more memorable shows because you have to just deal with it. Nobody cares that that pickup got screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be on your game. And that's, that's what I, I try to do the best I can and, and walk away from it when it's done. So I, I love that. And that's so important. It's so important for your mental health. And I like that attitude that I did the best I could do. You can live with that, have no regrets. But I love the fact that you say, I walk away from that. I'm not going to be depressed in the hotel room. I'm not going to, you know, question my life. What am I doing? Because you made a mistake. You're a human being. And all you can ask for is that you do your very best. And if anything goes wrong, hey, you can live with that. You can let go of that. And that's very important because if you were, not that way. There's no way you'd be as prolific as you are. And you're one of the most prolific artists I've ever known. Well, well, thanks. I had a experience a few months ago that shows just how professional some of these people are. I was playing on stage with Smashing Pumpkins, 35,000 people at uh, it was called Riot Fest in Chicago. And so Billy likes my guitar playing, Billy Corgan. We did this song. It was 10 minutes long. They let me totally shred. There was there there was no note police, no hand, no musical handcuffs, and I had a wireless unit on, not for the guitar, for the inner monitors. And so and and their 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 uh, guitar tech strapped it, you know, behind my stage shirt, and I started doing this over under tr- really fast, and my arm arced out so far it pulled the wireless cord out. And the wireless hit the ground. And here's Billy Corgan. Here's this guy who's had one of the most influential guys in, in that, you know, that uh, genre of music. I mean, he's had so many big hit songs. He looked at me and he saw that what that happened. He goes down, he swoops it up, and he put the pack on me. The bit, one of the biggest rock stars on the planet. People thought my nephew was there, my 20 year old nephew. And he goes, Uncle Mike, he goes, that was really cool. He goes, did you guys work that out? But Billy handled it so pro. And, and it was because, you know, they didn't give me enough cable to, to move my arm correctly. He didn't know I was going to, you know, because we didn't do it in rehearsal. And, and live, I was just, you know, bringing it, bringing the full game on. And But Billy actually acted like a tech, but he did it in such a rock star way. 
and you know it's on these gigantic monitors so everybody could see it i mean you know 50 feet high and, and uh but it was really cool but that's professionalism and i think see that's why my attitude it i uh, i don't like to be in a bad mood because it affects everything it you know instead of thinking about playing guitar i'm thinking about that i'm mad about something you know like god ah, it sucks ah, i can't think you know and and like when when i saw people like billy the way he did that, it was so cool. He actually put the pack on. Then the yeah. guitar tech raced out and finished it. But he did it so pro. It wasn't like he was caught off his game. He's like, okay, whoa, look what just happened. And he dealt with it. And what, what I love about that, and I could not say enough great things about Billy, as it, it you know, as, as a lot of things I've seen over the years and 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 the way he's represented himself and, and different ideas in society. But what he became is that concept of humility. I am, first of all, this is my show. I like, hey, yeah, there are guitar techs out there. But I, one, he did that first. The most important reason why he did that. And I think it was more important than it was his show. And he's the rock star because he had respect for you. And that's key is that, you know, he, he, he felt bad. He saw that it happened. And and his first thought was not to wait for guitar tech, but hey, I want Michael to shine right here, and this is what it's going to take. So I'm just going to do it, and that's that's that whole thing of I I'm a servant of of people, you know, and it goes so far, and it's that humility, you know, that hey, um, which you know we all have to have as artists, isn't it true that like there was this day in the major label days where. You know, the, the, there was a team and there's your, your lawyer and your manager and all that. And didn't we learn that if the artist, the band was not monitoring those people, they're going to take all your money and you're going to get screwed. So there was never a reality where you could just let other people, you know, represent you. In other words, this, you've got to be the commander of your ship. You have to know your team, who's in your team. And in the beginning, as an artist, you've got to be willing to do all of that yourself until you grow to a point where your income grows, your fan base, the work level, you can't do it all and you start hiring people. But, you know, in the beginning, you've got to be willing to do it yourself. And somebody like Billy is like, hey, you know, I'm here. I'm going to make that happen. And that's a great attitude to always have is that, you know, that professional attitude. And I'm a servant of people, you know, and uh, and I make people shine. And, hey, if I make people shine, I shine, you know, and that's that's a great attitude. And, and you know, it's 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 so wonderful, you know, to just get all this insight because it's like everything you're telling me. I already kind of know about you just from watching you. I'm a student myself, you know. But what I love is that you're sharing these ideas with people that can can really learn because all these ideas you've applied to achieve incredible success and not just one period of time, but consistently for how many years? I mean, countless years, you know. And and they're the basic, you know, principles that are just great things people can extract from. So you've got a tour coming up. You're going to uh, Europe in this spring. Do you want to talk about that at, at all? Yeah, it's uh, this is the third time since COVID started we've worked on it. And uh, I had to cancel a 40-show USA tour and a 30-plus show European tour just late last year because of that Delta variant thing. Yeah. So I talked to my agent. Uh, I'm supposed to start in Italy. Uh, it's either Pisa or Turin. 
uh, on, on the 25th. And, you know, we'll play Rome. We go on to Paris. I'm playing France, Austria, all places I've been to before. And even going into like a, the more Scandinavian countries. And so it's and then we found out England opened up completely with COVID. And so I got an offer to do roughly eight shows in England. So it's going to be it's going to be six weeks, as we know now, that might turn into eight. And uh, one of the cool shows I'm doing on this tour is and I've done this before. At, in the begin, at the end, very end of April, the the city's named like W R O Claw, but it's not pronounced like Ro Claw. It's in Poland. It's a Guinness Book of World Record event where it's uh, you play one song with more guitar players than I've ever played one song before, and I broke it about five years ago with Steve Vai. He was the headliner. Opened <laughs> up for him, and, and then we played. Uh, with an audience of over 7,000 guitar players playing the Hendrix version of the song Hey Joe. And so um, we're going to do that again, but this year I'm the headliner. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of good shows. We're anticipating that the tour is going to happen. And uh, once I get, we've got, it'll be about 35 shows when it's all said and done. We're waiting on a few. The shows have been confirmed, but the countries need to open up a little bit more. And so, and 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 the agents very confident that by April, when this the bulk of the tour is going to happen, the entire month and the end of March, that that I'll be doing it. So I can show the full itinerary soon, but it's going to be all the big countries. You know, it's uh, you know, we'll be in uh, Italy, Germany, uh, Austria, uh, France. Um, then we're going into Poland. Then there's other countries too. So I have to look like probably the Czech Republic. You know, places like that to fill in the, the tour dates. That's exciting. Uh, I'm sure people are going to be really happy to, uh, you know, see you live in Europe. And, uh, Michael, I just want to thank you for, for the time and all the just incredible knowledge you've imparted on us. And I, I'm very blessed to have you, very grateful to have you as a friend. And, and I, you know, I tell people all the time, I mean, like, you know, um, you're just just an incredible human, and I'm incredibly grateful for you. Where can people find you? Where are some of the places they can find you and social media, website? Yeah, um, the website we use, I actually, you're going to laugh at this. I owned Angelo.com forever because I got online in 1995 when I didn't, when a website, www.angelo.com looked like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs to me. My email address, I was like, what is this? I, I didn't even know what a, really the internet was. I was actually one of the first music companies online, my company Mace Music. And when I started my record company and, uh, I sold the name Angelo.com to a, a, a Dubai company. They, they were after me because it was a very valuable URL. There's a lot of companies out there with like Angelo Lighting, Angelo State University. There's a lot of, so anyway, I found with social media, I don't necessarily need the website that I used to be really into websites. And so now I, like I work with the other companies, Metal Method, you can find me, metalmethod.com. It's uh, Sawtooth World, but social media, it's Michelangelo Badio official. And it's always got that check mark that I'm verified. So you can find me on, on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I don't use Twitter. It's too volatile for me. I don't like to argue back. And so, but, but I'm on TikTok and just, but it's always Michelangelo Badio with an official. 
Okay, that, I got to find you on TikTok uh, then. I'll follow you on TikTok because I'm, yeah. I'm on there too. Um, that's awesome. So, yes, thank you so much for your time, uh, Michael. So you have been listening to Music City Revival podcast episode number eight with Michelangelo Batio. Um, you can hear more of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and, uh, which we, I think recently broke into the top 100 for music podcasts. We're excited about that. And you can find us at musiccityrevival.live. As I fall into you, as I I'm